Can we pray real quick before we get into this passage? Let's do that. Lord Jesus, please be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Open our eyes to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as the King. Help us to see him beyond what we're capable of, Lord, this morning. Fill our our minds and our hearts with wonder that, Lord Jesus, you have come to earth and manifested the glory of God and revealed yourself to us and that we can now see that glory. But we need you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to that glory this morning. Do your work in us as we study your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was a college ministry pastor in Virginia, um, from 2010 to 2017, I, one of the things that I ended up getting the opportunity to do that I loved doing, and I've told you this before, was officiating many, many weddings. I love that they call it officiating. It's so interesting. I never know whether to use that term or not. But regardless, I loved it. I was able to uh, officiate several weddings over several years and loved it. We, Bethany and I, always enjoyed being a part of those and uh, meeting families. It was always an interesting and enjoyable thing. Uh, We loved participating in in every wedding that we went to. But there was one wedding in particular that sort of blew our minds as far as a fancy experience. A couple that we had gotten to know in our college ministry in Lynchburg had asked me to do their wedding one summer on Long Island in New York. And uh, the woman was part of a very large church on Long Island, and her dad was uh, a rather wealthy um, businessman, that may be understating it, uh, who owned several businesses uh, on Long Island. And it was a huge wedding at this beautiful church, Um, And then after the wedding, we drove over to the reception location, which was at a clubhouse for a local golf course. Um, And it was a golf course where they have hosted the U.S. Open golf tournament several times. Um, So, you know, being in my early 30s and doing this wedding, I was a little bit um, in over my head in some ways, but we loved it. And as we went to the reception hall um, and, uh, and, and to where the reception was going to be held at this uh, country club or this golf course, um, you know, country club there, before we were allowed into the actual dining room where we would sit and where we would have dinner, they had appetizers. And the appetizers were fancier than any main course at a wedding I'd been to previously. Um, it was kind of shocking. You know, when a, when a server is walking around with white gloves on and holding a silver tray and asking you if you'd like another lamb chop, you know, we, we knew we were sort of out of our league um, there. Uh, the actual dining room, once we went into it, was gorgeous. And it had glass walls and a glass ceiling, which allowed you to look out and see the first hole of this golf course, the tee box and all of that. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I don't know how much it cost to get this location and to serve over 300 people amazing filet mignon for the dinner, Um, but I was okay with it, and uh, I enjoyed being there. Um, Every wedding, though, regardless of how fancy it is, is a time of joyful festivity, and that's exactly right. It should be that way, and I think that's one of the reasons I love being a part of a wedding. 
And as fancy and as wonderful as that wedding was, Jews during biblical times took it to another level. They celebrated a wedding for sometimes up to a week. I mean, it was an extravagant event that took place. It was an important event. And one of the reasons that they celebrated it with such gusto every wedding was they thought of God being a, a patron at Adam and Eve's wedding. That he was the one that set this up and he was the one that enjoyed them coming together and getting married there. And in some ways, he was the one that officiated it. And so they modeled their celebration and their enjoyment and the importance of weddings off of that. It was a significant moment. And so all of that in the background makes this celebration, a wedding celebration in many ways, a really appropriate way to introduce the beginning of Jesus' ministry here in the Gospel of John. This is the first sign, and it's designated that way, as you saw in verse 11, that is recorded in the Gospel of John, the first of many here. So as we get into this, and I hope you're open to John 2 this morning, here's what I'd like to do, and it's a little different than what we normally do, right? We're sort of in a rhythm where I give you you know, a, a proposition or a way of, you know, three ways or three this or four that, and then I walk you through the passage. But what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through the story and help you to feel the flow of the story and the narrative and what's going on, and then I want to circle back around and make some application, and that's when we'll get to our normal statement of what's going on here, all right? I want to draw out some implications for you from this sign regarding the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. So John chapter 2, look with me at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, I mentioned to you last week that I wanted you to take note in chapter 1 of several times that John, as he's writing this, says, on the next day. And he does this intentionally. He does this as if he's keeping track of the number of days that are happening in the early ministry of Jesus. And so if you were to go back this afternoon and start counting up these days, if you begin with when the delegation comes to John the Baptist and starts to question him about who he is, if you make that day one and you count forward, then this wedding happens on the seventh day. Now, we've already seen John begin his gospel by clearly referencing the Genesis account of creation. I mean, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. And that's clearly going back and drawing our attention to the the account of creation at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.1, and he does that on purpose. And of course, the account of creation in the book of Genesis takes seven days total, with the Sabbath day, the seventh day being a day of rest. And now he draws our attention in purposely, intentionally to these days because he wants us to count them up and he wants us to see Jesus' ministry beginning with a period of seven days here. And the reason John does that is he wants us to understand that through the ministry of Jesus, the new creation has begun. It's a new age and a new era. The old creation, Christ was there for, and here he's breaking into that old creation through his life and his death and his resurrection and ministry, and the new creation is beginning here. And it's really necessary for you and I to think of Christ's 
ministry as disrupting the old, breaking into the old, and bringing the new. And it's necessary that you think in those terms in light of what we're going to see today and then what we're going to continue to read about in John chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. The reason for that is because this miracle or this sign begins the first cycle in the gospel of John. If you were to go forward to chapter 4 and verse 54, why don't you flip over there for just a second? You'll see there that it says, now this This later miracle was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And this one, back up in verse 46, takes place in Cana in Galilee as well. And so this whole cycle, this whole section, chapters 2 through chapter 4, are bookended by a miracle, a sign done in Cana in Galilee. And so John bookends them that way and puts everything else in between because he wants us to read all of this together. All of this is presenting Jesus as bringing what is new in the new creation and breaking into the old. All of these stories in the middle and all that happens is connected to that theme and that idea. But if you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, here... We have a wedding going on. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And so Jesus' mother was invited to this wedding, and if you look at verse 2, some others were invited as well. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I've already told you a Jewish wedding was a, a, a massive celebration, oftentimes going on for seven days and seven nights. And it was a time of food and drink and dancing and fun. It was a celebration. And in these times of celebration, the groom and his family are responsible to make sure that everyone is taken care of, that they have all that they need. And that responsibility becomes a problem at this wedding. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, wine was a key element in the celebration, in the wedding. And in this region, there were many vineyards that cultivated grapes and made wine. It was very common. And to have a wedding where the groom's family runs out of wine would have brought overwhelming shame. Remember, this culture is a culture of honor and shame. It was very important that you represented your family well, your people well. And so to be in a situation where you run out of one of the key parts of this celebration is to bring unbelievable amounts of shame on you, just as your married life is beginning, and on your family. It was very normal at a Jewish wedding to have so much food and drink that there was some left over because heaven help you that you run out. You had to have enough for the entire celebration and you wanted more than enough to make sure that you wouldn't run out. In fact, if you ran out, there was some precedent for the bride's family suing the groom's family for damages because you had brought shame on her family, because you ran out of what you needed at her wedding. It looked that bad, right? And so this is a rough situation to be in, and so the mother of Jesus apparently has some sort of inside connection to the family. We don't know exactly what, 
But she finds out before everybody else does, apparently, that they're, they've run out of wine. And she makes Jesus aware of the issue. Now, it looks like in verse 3 that she's trying to leverage her relationship with Jesus, obviously being his mother, to get him to help out. We don't know what she expected him to do. We don't know exactly what she thought he would do. But she knows him and trusts him and so goes to him to let him know about this. Jesus responds in verse 4. Look there. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus' response is not rude here, even though it seems to be. I would not recommend saying this to your mother. (laughs) But in Greek, it's not a rude way to address her, but it certainly is abrupt. And what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's trying to put some distance between Mary, between his mother, and between him, right? He's trying to put some distance because he's trying to say, listen, you have concerns at this moment, and those concerns may not always be my concerns. There are other things that I am interested in and are important to me that you may not even be aware of. And that's why he says here, my hour has not yet come. This is the first time this phrasing is used in the Gospel of John. But this phrase, my hour, or talking about the hour, is something that will happen throughout the gospel. And you'll see throughout the first section of this gospel, all the way through chapter 12, you will see it said that Jesus's hour has not yet come. It's not here yet. But then you get to chapter 13, which is in the upper room when Jesus on Passover night is with his disciples the day before his crucifixion. And here's what you find there, John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so the the hour that he's referencing here is the key hour of his death, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, and his return to the Father. And so clearly at this point, his hour has not yet come. And he understands, I think, that to begin the process of these signs brings him to the beginning of that road to where he will reach the cross. Now, Jesus's mother here has been rebuffed a little bit by this response. But interestingly enough, she demonstrates quite a bit of faith here in verse 5. And you see this from other characters in the gospel right? There's a bit of a pushback from Jesus at times, sort of challenging them, and then they'll follow through and demonstrate what real faith looks like, and that's what Mary does here. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Again, we don't know what she thought he would do. We don't know what she thought he could do, but she knew Jesus, obviously. She'd known him for, for quite a while. She knew he was a unique individual. She knew the truth about him, And so she knew she could trust him and rely on him. And so she took the problem to him. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, in the Old Testament, you read about the need for purification before offering a sacrifice. You have to wash yourself, right? 
Or before you approach God's presence, you have to, to wash the dirt away and be, be clean. But at this, point, at this point in time, in Judaism, in the practice of their faith and their religion, these sort of rituals that were exemplified by these jars here for purification had grown to an, an intrusive level in people's lives. I mean, go read Mark 7 to, find, to understand what I'm talking about here. But all these rules and regulations regarding purification. So these six stone jars, which are quite large here, these were kept aside specifically for this ritual cleansing so that you could participate in your faith in some way. So these jars would not have been used for anything else. Jesus makes use of them. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now at this point as you're reading through this story, you don't know what has happened, right? We don't even we don't even know that it has, it's water turned into wine yet. Jesus has just told them to fill it up with water, fill it all the way up to the brim, each of these jars, and take some of what you draw out to the master of the feast. John does not focus on the mechanism of how this happens, but obviously something takes place. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted, and here's when we find out what has happened, the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn out the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now this guy, the master of the feast, he was the one, he could have been possibly hired by the family, he could have been voted on by all the guests at the wedding to be the one who sort of emcees the whole thing and facilitates it. He was responsible for mixing the wine and distributing it and making sure that people had enough to drink. He was the one that was responsible for managing the party publicly. And so it's clear from verse 9 that something has happened, that the water that was put in these jars by the servants, has changed into wine. And the master of the feast now tastes it. And when he tastes it, he calls for the bridegroom. Why? Because the bridegroom is the one who is responsible for the wine. And he's the one whose family is responsible for making sure that everyone has what they need to celebrate. And look what he says to him in verse 10. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, this lets us in a little bit here on a common practice at weddings. Apparently, they would serve the highest quality wine first and save the less expensive stuff till later. And once people are enjoying themselves and enjoying the party, then they would bring out the less expensive stuff and they wouldn't notice the poor quality, perhaps. But this wine is evidently of such high quality that this feast master picks up on it right away. It's obvious and evident to him. Now, this miracle is pretty simply stated, right? I mean, you read through this, it's very simply stated. This is what happened. It's a change, a miraculous change from water into wine, and it's not even public. I mean, there are a few people that know about it. Obviously, the servants know, and no doubt Jesus' mother understands what has happened here, perhaps his disciples as well. 
But this is not a public miracle in that sense. But notice what John calls this event in verse 11. And this is really the key part for us. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, this is a sign. It's not simply a mighty act. It's not just, I'm going to say it with quotations marks around the just, it's not just a miracle. Listen, here's the tendency for us as we read the Gospels, right? We read about something miraculous happening, and we think, okay, this shows us the power of Jesus Christ. It proves to us that he is God, and we sort of stop there. And it is true that obviously this does prove that he is God, and it does show us the power of God over the elements of creation. Something miraculous took place when the water, H2O, changed to wine. Something amazing took place in that moment. But John here intentionally calls this a sign and not just a miracle. And he does that because the reason it's a sign is because it points to much more than simply that Jesus is God, although that's a big deal. It points to more than that. It instructs us about the nature of his ministry and who he is and what he will do. One author put it like this, and I think this is helpful for you to see. Jesus's miracles are never simply naked displays of power. Listen, if you're reading them and you stop with, look how powerful Jesus is, that's fine, but you haven't understood the text properly. You haven't gone far enough. Still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. That's what's happening here. These signs in the Gospel of John are not just listed to show us that Jesus is powerful. They teach us about his ministry and they teach us about the character of God. And as these deeper realities are unfolded to us, they foster faith as they did in verse 11 in the disciples. They saw what happened and they believed. And those that come with eyes to see, see the glory of God manifested. And so here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. I want to go back to this story and I want to pull out some implications regarding the ministry of Jesus here. Since this isn't just a naked display of God's power, which is amazing in and of itself, I want to show you what this points to regarding the ministry of Jesus, because it's much deeper than just that he can change water into wine. So we're going to look at three gifts from the ministry of Jesus demonstrated by this sign, by the water turned to wine. Three gifts. Things that we receive, things that we see from the ministry of Jesus. And the first one of these is that he fulfills the old covenant with the new. This is that disruption that I was talking about earlier. You saw in verse 6, I drew your attention to this. Look back there. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. John intentionally mentions what they were used for. This is no accident that he wants you to understand. 
These water jars were used for the Jewish rites of purification. John wants us to see that the use of these jars, and specifically these ones used for purification to turn water into wine, he wants us to understand that is Jesus fulfilling the old covenant by bringing something new out of it. We already saw some of how this works in chapter 1 and verse 17. Look back there with me. The law was a good gift given through Moses, right? The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a good gift of the law through Moses. It's not that that is bad. It was given for a time and for a season, but something better has come through Jesus Christ. A gift of grace and truth. And we'll see later in chapter 2, actually next week, Jesus is going to attack the commerce in the temple, and then he's going to proclaim that he is the temple. It's not that the temple was a bad thing. It was instituted by God and given to the Israelites so that they could dwell in his presence. But Jesus is going to say something better has come. The full and final revelation of God's presence is here with you. The full realization of God being with his people as he intended. And all throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to read about the person and ministry of Jesus filling up or culminating the goal of the Old Covenant. Jesus says that Moses spoke about him. It all points toward him. The Old Covenant was important. It was significant. But it was temporary, and it was given to prepare the way for God's full and final and better and clearer revelation of himself found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of the things that this miracle, this sign, points us toward. And this new covenant is a better and more glorious covenant than the original. Next, he delivers, Jesus does, and demonstrates this through this miracle, the lavish provision of the kingdom. It's, it's not accidental here that Jesus turned the water into wine. It's not accidental. You may not have realized this before, but the Old Testament over and over again expects that the messianic kingdom will be one where the richest wine is given by God to his people in abundance. I'm not making this up. It's in the Old Testament, and I'm going to show it to you over and over again. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. Looking ahead to the day when things are made right, this is what it says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will, and look what this is associated with. When the king who does this comes, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
And so it's not accidental that Jesus does this here. It's not just about the elements changing from H2O to something else. It's about the fulfillment of this expectation and him demonstrating that he is this king and this kingdom is coming through him. Jeremiah 31, this is the passage where the new covenant is given in the book of Jeremiah. God promises a new covenant and he promises that this will happen as he returns to save and bless his people. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. God promises that the new covenant will be accompanied by abundance and by blessing as the messianic kingdom is ushered in. Joel chapter 3 and verse 17 and 18. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day... The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Continues this theme. This is the expectation that is built into the Old Testament regarding the coming king. Amos 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. I want to show you one more passage this morning. Genesis 49. It's an amazing text of scripture. And in this passage, we find Jacob, old Jacob, who is down in Egypt, and he's making all of these predictions about his sons and what's going to happen to them and to their descendants in the future. And this passage, Genesis 49, is the first indication that we have in scripture that the Messiah will come through the line of Judah. Now we get more specific direction here, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah is identified. Here's what he says regarding the king coming through the line of Judah. Verses 8 through 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. There's a reason Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay, so you read this and you think, yes, royalty is going to come through the line of Judah. 
The king will be a descendant of Judah. Then, in verse 11, he begins to prophesy and describe what sort of kingdom Judah's descendant will reign over. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, this is a little confusing. Let me explain what's going on, and I think it's really cool. What this means when you see the, he will bind his foal, his donkey, to his choicest vine, right? That's not something you normally do. If you have an amazing grapevine that produces unbelievable grapes, you don't normally let your donkey eat them. Not a good idea, right? But what this is saying is that when this king reigns from the line of Judah, there will be so much abundance and blessing will be so full that he will not even have to worry about tying his donkey to his choicest vine. It's fine. We've got so much, and his provision is so lavish that he doesn't even care about this. There will be so much abundance here that he could wash his garments in wine, which is rather expensive to make because he has so much and his people are so blessed and the wine will be dark and good and he will reflect that and be healthy and strong because of the abundant provision that he brings to his kingdom. Now, go back to John 2 here. And in John 2, you remember that I told you in this wedding, the master of the feast goes to the bridegroom because the bridegroom is the one who is responsible to provide for the people at the wedding. And it brought shame if they ran out of the wine that they needed and didn't have it. The master of the feast approaches him and commends him for the richness of the wine. But in this passage, who has provided the wine? It's Jesus. And interestingly enough, what do we find in John chapter 3, John the Baptist calling Jesus? Two chapters later, one chapter later, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus is the bridegroom who dies for his bride and brings about the messianic kingdom where there will be abundant blessing and lavish provision, and we will rejoice in God who has done it all. And that's what we pick up from this. And that's a right reading of this in light of John 3 here. Jesus is the bridegroom. And in light of the Old Testament here, where the messianic kingdom is one of lavish provision, that's what we have to look forward to. The last gift here. He manifests the goodness of God. If you go back to verse 6 again, one of the things you find here is you find these jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons of water each. That's a lot of water to be turned into wine. A lot. A whole lot. Each pot holds 20 to 30 gallons, and Jesus tells them to fill them all up 
to the brim. But it's not just the quantity that he provides. It's not just a lot of cheap wine. What does the master of the feast say? This is the best. This is good. There is a quality to his, this. And so it's a quantity and a quality. It's a lavish provision. And this sign, according to verse 11, if you go down there, what does it do? It puts on display the character and the glory of God. And so what do we learn about God from this provision, from this sign? He is a God of undeserved, abundant, overwhelming, extravagant provision and goodness. And it's in him that we are provided for. Our lacking is met with his provision. And we find our joy and our satisfaction in him alone. He gives far more than we deserve. He gives abundantly. He gives better than we deserve. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Look, since Genesis 3, what is the lie that Satan has tried to get us to believe? That God is stingy. Oh, he kept you. He doesn't want you to eat of this tree because he doesn't want you to understand the goodness or the difference between good and evil. And so, Satan tells Adam and Eve, you can only find true joy, true satisfaction, and true life by turning to yourself, by listening to me and turning to yourself and your own wisdom and your own resources. That's where you find true joy and satisfaction, according to the serpent. But the testimony of Scripture is that God is good beyond what we can imagine, and he gives abundantly and provides in order to draw us to himself and to to give us true life, the way we were meant to live, which is to find our joy and our satisfaction and our abundance in him. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. He is the the water for the thirsty soul. It is not yourself. It's not your own resources and your own abilities. He is the one that provides beyond what we can imagine. I found this quote this week from Blaise Pascal about the human condition, and I thought it addressed the provision that God has for us and our own seeking and pursuing happiness apart from him so well that I wanted to read it to you. There was once in man a true happiness of which there now remained to him only the mark and empty traits, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object That is to say, only by God himself. So I would say for us, turn from your pursuit of goodness and provision in your surroundings. Stop looking for it out there 
and instead look to the infinite fountain of goodness who gives with lavish abundance. And so, as you look, you can see, I think, that these miracles, these signs in the Gospel of John are more than just displays of God's power. Each of them will fill in our understanding of who our Savior is and what he has come to do. And they give us this rich and this full vision of the Son and of his ministry, and they manifest God's goodness and his glory. Why? So that we can see him, we can believe him, and we can delight in him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so quick to pursue our joy and our satisfaction in any number of things. And I pray this morning that you would fill up our souls with the delight of your goodness and your provision. Help us to understand at a deep level that we can only find our our satisfaction and our rest and our joy in you. Instruct us by your spirit now as we return our worship back to you for who you are and for what you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.